The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I am your host, Jeff Counts, and we're talking about opera again today on the Ghost Light Podcast. And I'm thrilled to be joined by Jake Heggie and Gene Shear. This is the composer and librettist of Moby Dick. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Great Thank to you. be here. It's really great to have the two of you. As we speak, as we record, a new production of Moby Dick will be premiered by Utah Opera as part of its 40th anniversary season. Everybody's very excited. And I, I wanted to talk to the two of you in particular because it's been, what, eight years or so since this piece premiered in Dallas? Eight years. 2010, yes. right? And I know that this is a completely brand new production. Obviously, music and librettos stay largely the same in a situation like this, but just about everything else will be different. So what's it like to see your work get this new perspective, and how does it feel to revisit it in these new circumstances? It's beyond thrilling, and great honor, and just thrilling to watch other people take what we put on the page and bring their imagination and their experience yeah. and what they see into it and, and create something brand new. It's just, it's yeah. thrilling. It's beyond really, thrilling. It, it really is great. One of the things we love about the business is that how collaborative it is. And the idea of like merging all these new imaginations and new mm-hmm. talents mm-hmm. and a new vision for the piece. It's wonderful to watch these uh, artists on stage and the production team uh, work their magic. It has to be gratifying to both of you, too, that five additional companies have signed on to yes. this project. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. eight years on for you guys is probably a couple of lifetimes. You've got a lot <laughs> of projects in between then and now. You're thinking about the future all the time. It's probably great, though, to have so much interest in Moby Dick still. Well, it, there was a lot of interest in it right at the beginning, but mm-hmm. the original production was very expensive to yeah. produce. Magical amazing, mind-blowing, jaw-dropping, and very expensive. And right right after the premiere, there were five big companies that signed up to do it. Mm -hmm. And one by one, five companies withdrew when they found out how much it was going to cost. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Yes. And so that was very disappointing because it had gone so well and it had been so embraced and people loved it and they wanted to see it. And it was actually Christopher Macbeth that came up with the idea of a starting being part of a consortium and creating a production that could travel to smaller houses and companies that could not afford uh, that massive production. And yeah. so that was the vision, and that gives the piece new life, and it gives it new opportunities. And, you know, we put it aside to create other pieces and do other work for the time being, mm-hmm. but now it's come back to life, and, you know, we hear it, as Gene said, through new imaginations, and we learn new things about the piece. That's what's great about when brilliant people lend their perspective to it. Right. You know, like the, I think the set design is brilliant. It's like spectacular. Erhard Rahm is a great designer. Costumes are magnificent. Christine McIntyre has done a fantastic job. She's a former guest on the, the Ghost Light podcast. <laughs> She's well known to our audience. She's done a yeah. great job. And uh, and then the chorus and orchestra and cast and crew, they're all doing such a fantastic job. And it looks great in the theater and it fills the space. And uh, it's just, a, like I said, it's thrilling. I, I have I, to, oh, please. No, I was just say, one of the standouts is the chorus. They yeah. really have done such an incredible job. They sound great. Uh, they're moving uh, beautifully on stage with lots of uh, intention and meaning and, and vigor. And uh, it's really great to see them bring such a, a, a beautiful sort of texture to the piece brand new chorus director for us this year too we're really excited about talented. the work she's doing talented yeah. very very it's talented. really it's, it's i think the audiences will will recognize the quality of the yeah. chorus immediately how good it is well and your orchestra come yeah. on yeah. they are a great orchestra it's, yeah. it's pretty great <laughs> and it's, it's the, and the maestro uh, joey uh, makovich yeah. is someone that uh, i've worked with a lot mm-hmm. that we've both worked with a lot and uh, uh he just 
you know, when you don't even think about anything but the characters and the unfolding of the drama because the pacing is just right, right. that's a theater conductor at work. Yeah, absolutely. Because he just, it flows so naturally. It's exactly, it's so wonderful to hear the score that I wrote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. In addition to seeing the opera that, you know, and the libretto that Gene wrote come to life. Yeah. But it, it's it's that wonderful magical combination. There's so much talent up there that... You know, we just get to show up and take a bow. It's so lovely. Well, I, I, I wonder, you know, all, all of these new things, I'm sure that compared to the original, some of the dramatic beats are in different places, and it's a, and it's a different experience. I'm wondering if there are any new connections or subtleties that, that weren't apparent to you the first time around that are that are happening now. I mean, how is it? How is the piece a new experience for the two of you, even though it's hard to imagine that it could be? I would say for me, how interconnected all the different pieces are because Mm -hmm. it's a much smaller stage and set and more intimate. So everything, you really feel how everything is very interconnected in Mm -hmm. the life on the ship. You know, that this is happening over here while this is unfolding over here, while this event is emerging over here, and it's all happening at the same time as it would on a ship. Um, And there's, you know, there's very little, there's very few times when it's just one person alone on the stage. We're always aware of the activity on the ship. Mm, right. And I think that that production really shines a spotlight. What does that, that narrowing of scope do for you, Gene? I mean, what does it, how does it change things for you? Or? Well, I would come back to the, to the chorus again, because it's the choral scenes that I think really feel um, uh, different in some ways. Yeah. I mean, they, they, the original production was spectacular. They yeah. did an incredible job, and we've yeah. had a great run with it, and, and hope that it gets done again uh, in, 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 in theaters as, uh, as the years go by. Yeah. But I, one of the things that sort of stands out in addition to the quality of the singing was, as Jake was saying, the, uh, the vibrancy of what's happening on stage with the chorus. Uh, all, all throughout, so you feel the heartbeat of the ship, mm-hmm. uh, which is taking place, because all of these uh, events that are taking place are taking place uh, the same time while right. while the life of the ship goes on. Right. And furthermore, it's you know in terms of uh, Greenhorn's journey to become Ishmael, he is watching all these different things that are taking place on this voyage. And we made it an active story where this young rookie uh, sailor goes on the on the uh, on this voyage yeah. and winds up becoming the man who will write Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. But when he's uh, going through the experience, where he's he's having all these experiences in what we call in real time, where he's learning about um, Ahab's madness, Starbucks' uh, religious uh, fervor, and all the other the group think that is uh, that is taking place. Uh, on this voyage, so it's important how it all weaves together, and also how it weaves together for the for the journey of this uh, principal character. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned the character, and I'm so glad you mentioned this journey because I think that's one of the principal differences between the book, which I do want to talk to you guys about, and this opera is that the book feels like someone recollecting, mm-hmm. but is. the opera feels like somebody creating. Right. things to recollect later. It's a it's more active, it's more real time as you suggest yeah. and it's interesting to hear you say that. Well, well that was I mean, say that was in, uh, completely our intention yeah. when we yeah. both Jake and I knew that we had to find a way of making it an active story. Right. And uh you know when it sort of became clear that uh you know Ishmael in the book he goes he you know he's this depressed young man who goes to goes to the sea uh but as we discover, he's never been on a whaler. He's the only person on the Pequod who's never been on a whaler. He was ship a merchant before. marine, right? Right. Yeah. And so he's. This is a whole new experience for him. Yeah. So we and the idea of having his this voyage, this emotional trip that he goes on, uh, be at the center of the of the of the piece was something that appealed to 
to both of us. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, like you said, the, the book is reflective. Right. It takes place by the survivor recalling what and happened to him. And very self-aware in, right. in its reflection. Right. He, he admits He's much older at, when he's right, writing the right. book. And right. says so many times. And we knew, and what actually liberated us was putting the first line of the novel at the end of the opera. Which is, so a, that, which is a brilliant touch, I have to <laughs> so give that, Well, credit. <laughs> but then we earn that line. Yeah. And then that's going to be the first line of the book that that person writes. by literary novels turned to opera. You know, we, we did it here with Grapes of Wrath a number of years ago. We've had Little Women here. There's been different, mm-hmm. you know, novel, mm-hmm. novel to opera transformations here. And I just wondered, when, when you guys were looking at this book, which, let's be honest, is sort of famous for being a bit impenetrable, mm-hmm. probably the most frequently started and least finished book mm-hmm. in history. Mm-hmm. It just, it's, it's a difficult one, reputation-wise. I mean, how do you take something so dense and so Baroque small b, mm-hmm. I, I should say, and distill it into the very concentrated story you're telling, what goes and what gets changed. It's well, a long conversation. Yeah, it's a long conversation, yeah. and, and part of it is being bold and being, uh, you know, to know that you, you're, you can't take the novel and put it on the stage. You need to not reinvent it, but distill it. Mm-hmm. And we distilled it down to the, the, the journeys of these two relationships that take place, the, the relationship between uh, Queequeg and, and Greenhorn and Ahab and Starbuck. And again, we keep coming back to this notion of real time, uh, but having watching things unfold, we wanted the story to be active. One of the appeals of it wasn't just reinventing the book, because one of the reasons to do it is because the book appeals to us uh, on such a deep level. Right. And, and, and one of the things I'm always looking for when we're looking at source material are, are what I call the layups. What's the, the stuff that's self-evidently operatic? Sure. And Ahab's language is self uh, self-evidently operatic to me. There's It's a question of distilling it and culling it from the novel but those those speeches are like king lear i mean they're it's... just they're just so incredibly rich so uh what you discover is that you know if you look at the libretto um i wrote a lot but what but i didn't write a lot for ahab i wrote a tiny tiny bit for ahab most of what he says yeah. comes from the book you're right ahab's like a cross between a shakespearean mega hero and a country parson at a salem witch trial or something i just love the antiqueness of the language and you kept it but i interrupted you jake you no 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 something. i was gonna say one of the things that we knew we needed to do in addition to keeping the the action active, was to make it an adventure story. It really is an adventure story. And that was actually Melville's first intention with it when he wrote his first draft. Mm -hmm. It was another whaling adventure like Mm -hmm. he had written before and become famous for. And it was his meeting with Hawthorne that turned all that around. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the core of it is a young man on an adventure of self-discovery on this microcosm of the world. That has all these different, you know, races and religions and ethnicities all working together with this single purpose to make money by hunting whales. Mm-hmm. And then this is how this journey unfolds. And he creates this universal human experience on this on this adventure, which is so magical. Mm-hmm. But it had to be an adventure story for the audience. You know, when you go to an opera, you're looking for 
an emotional experience that's going to leave you feeling changed. Something that is surprising and beautiful and harrowing, all of those things that we look for. And so that's part of an adventure story, not a narration and certainly not going so deep into the psychological part of the book that you leave people alienated. And we discovered that, you know, like a chapter on knots and how difficult it is to to hunt a whale yeah. could be done with some few gestures and also by an aria from Starbuck telling Greenhorn, this is where he's sitting right. and this is what's going to happen. And sure. then Quig, Quig tells him, and this is what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, And then we get the ele- that element of it. It was a lot of back and forth and I a bet. lot of choices, but when the idea first happened, it was a suggestion of Terrence McNally and he set three uh, parameters that we kept as, as Gene and I started to work. One is that the whole thing is set at sea. It doesn't go back and forth on land as mm-hmm. the book does. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that would Pip be, would be a pants role, would be sung right. by a soprano. Right. And that Ahab would be a held in tenor. Yeah. Um, because, and it was interesting because I, after we started, a lot of people said to me, well, I mean, shouldn't Ahab be a base? I mean, he's so evil. Mm-hmm. I was like, is he? Yeah. No, he is a very complicated human being, yep. but he's also an inspiring captain who can be heard above everything else when, when there's activity on the ship and can inspire a room full of people to go, I mean, a, a ship full of people to go with him on this crazed voyage and set aside their own ambitions to get this one whale out of an ocean full of whales. And to us, that's a held tenor. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and I love that choice because it, it, he does seem like the character Wagner might have dreamed up. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. something very, well, obviously very tragic mm-hmm. about him, and, the, and that tragedy mm-hmm. shines through everything he does. But speaking of characterizations, to me, one of the most important characters of the book is Starbuck. I mean, mm-hmm. he's the moral center of a lot of it, and he's, his steadfastness is something that you can really grab onto as you read the book. And I feel like you guys captured that really well, too. Was that a conscious decision to make Starbuck he was a very importantly cl- moral and centered? That's who he is. That's yeah. who he is, and yeah. also, I mean, it, it is also it's a it's a conflict that's woven into the right. to the fabric of the book. And mm-hmm. you know, in opera, you're looking for conflicts, yeah. and you want to watch people sort of fight it out. And that's what's at the at the center of the opera mm-hmm. uh, between Ahab and Starbuck. I right. feel like some of those scenes you guys did nearly literally too from mm-hmm. the book. The that's absolutely true. The end of the end of Act One is yeah. is in large measure. There's some you know uh-huh. fiddling with it, but there, in large measure, it's from the it end of the musket scene. Yeah. The same. It the feels exactly the same. The musket scene and also the right. The, the, the symphony, symphony. Right. that is a right. very that's right from the book. But he was a very clear character, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the thing. You're always looking for clarity right. when you're taking something as massive as this. Right. The heart, the there were a lot of very difficult moments in trying to choose because we were limited by contract, you know, by the commission agreement, how many principal characters we could have, how many secondary characters, right. how big a chorus and orchestra, etc. That's all part of the deal. But um, so, which characters were we going to focus on? Vocally, how are we going to cast them so that they were foils? So Ahab is a held in tenor. So uh, Starbuck is a powerful lyric baritone. Yeah, you know, as his mm-hmm. foil that covers a range. Queequeg is a bass baritone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greenhorn is a lyric tenor. So we cover another vocal range between mm-hmm. those two. Mm-hmm. Flask and Stub, tenor and baritone once again. And then we have Pip, who is sort of the heart of the ship, the lost heart of the ship. Totally. You know, who sails above in the soprano range. Vocal casting is very important, but they're actual characters. The hardest one for me to grab a hold of was Ahab, because he is so extraordinarily complicated. And uh, Gene knows this story. I I wrote about 60 pages of music and basically had to start all over again, because all the other characters were clear to me, except Ahab. Interesting. I was writing an idea of Ahab. Sure. 
And then I, I kept hitting this wall, and then I went to the middle of Act One to his aria, I Leave a White and Turbid Wake, yes. where it's about a man who realizes he's lost his grip yep. on what was everything that was dear to him has suddenly slipped away. That's a very human moment and an open-hearted moment, and I could connect with that. And so I wrote that, and it was very clear, and I had all the material I needed for Ahab, and then all the themes from the opera emerged, and I went back to the beginning and wrote the So everything piece. before and after just flowed from that. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's well, great. Well, he is the tree out of which Absolutely. all limbs grow. Right. Can we talk about the music for just a second? Sure. Because I think it's incredibly evocative. I mean, you know right where you are at all times. The shipboards are well-trod in this art form. <laughs> there's, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of music of the sea in, in opera. And I wonder if when you're taking on a project like this, especially something this iconic, I mean... Mm-hmm. You, you two were going to be the guys that brought Moby Dick to the opera stage. That's no small thing. When you were doing it, did you think about Britain? Did you think about Wagner? Was any of that in your head at all? Or did you, were you just approaching it from, it from a character standpoint? It wasn't even a matter of thinking about them. They're part of my compositional DNA, yeah. you know, yeah. as much as Debussy and Ravel right. and Poulenc and Mozart and, you know, Bach and mm-hmm. all of that is part of my uh, creative DNA. And... It's not that I actively call upon it. It's just it's there to serve me um, when it's right. And uh, so when I sat down to write uh, this piece or we started thinking about themes, actually the first theme that I came up with was Queequeg's chant Mm. because we knew that was going to be a constant for that character. And then there was the sound of Ahab's leg. How are we going to deal with that on the ship? And the chorus calling back and forth on the ship. How is that going to feel? How is that going to sound? And so it was developing a lot of those things and then out of that sort of emerged a color and a feeling for the sea that I think you hear right from the very first notes. For sure. Um, this also, this sense of infinity, which is the first word that Ahab says that, mm-hmm. that Gene gave him to sing when he, when he come, makes his first vocal entrance. The idea that the book really is an exploration of the infinite below us on the, on the ocean that we don't know about, the infinity above us that we don't know anything about, and the infinity of the heart of the person right. next to us. Within, within, each, within each soul. Right? Sure. And from that somehow emerged music that made sense to me. The, the, the hardest part of any project from my standpoint is finding the musical language of that particular story. So Dead Man Walking sounds very different. My opera Dead Man Walking sounds very different from Three Decembers, our opera, mm-hmm. three-character opera, uh-huh. and from Moby Dick, and from It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Because each of them has their own journey and their own set of characters, and it's finding a musical language for that world out of which the characters can emerge very organically so that it makes sense they're part of that world. That's the hardest part. That's, you know, cracking into the, into the core of it. It sounds like when you talk about infinity you know, particularly the infinity below and above, it sounds like you really are, and, and this this might sound ridiculous to say out loud, but I do think it's revelatory. You're, you're really using Melville mm-hmm. because yeah. he speaks to those things so well and so clearly. I mean, the difference between this book and Bud yeah. is not just in pages. Mm-hmm. There's just a difference in depth that... Mm-hmm. I hope made it actually easier to connect with him musically well, you know, and one of, one of, artistically. One of my thoughts was that, you know, obviously because of bandwidth and so much for the audience, you have to distill it, you have to cut it down. Yeah. But my feeling is what is cut away, whether it's the cytology or whatever the, the other stuff that's been cut away in some of the plot lines and some characters, is reinterpreted in a musical language. Mm-hmm. And the audience is getting that material not in a clear, you know, literal way, but they're getting the feeling of it. And, I, and sort of the, I always say music 
is the marrow of the matter, and it's yeah. what's communicating it. So I think what what Jake was able to accomplish is with everything that I cut out or we cut out as we were crafting the libretto, and it becomes uh, woven into the music, and the the audience is receiving that information uh, with a different kind of vocabulary. As I can't tell you how meaningful it is to hear you describe it that way as somebody who just finished the book and really enjoyed all of that connective tissue, all yeah. of the wailing arcana. I loved it. It was important to me, and it made me understand Moby Dick better when he finally appears at the end. And the way you just described that is a really beautiful way to think of it, and I, I, I really do appreciate that. I don't want to keep you guys for too long, but yeah. I do want to ask a couple of other questions in the fun vein. Sure. So I, you don't have to give away any projects you currently have working, <laughs> but I wonder from both of you, and you can go in whatever order you like, if there's a subject historical, contemporary, purely fictional, hilarious or not, is there a subject that hasn't been given an operatic treatment yet that you think needs one? Just shoot from the hip. What is it? I don't know. <laughs> Avoiding, of course, the obvious but, yeah, one. <laughs> I, like, I like being surprised. And when someone yeah. says they're going to do a project based on thus and so, and I go, yeah. oh, I would never have thought of that. Yeah. Right. That's, yeah. that's the wonder of it. You yeah. know, It's not doing what's expected. It's doing what's unexpected. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, uh, we have a couple things up our sleeve for the future, which is exciting. I'm sure. Things that have taken us by surprise yeah. as well and also very different yeah. uh, kinds of subjects for us so we're, we're looking forward to them so i was asked a little while ago what what is a sort of a comedy that you think is perfect for the opera that hasn't been approached as an opera mm-hmm. um and it's not entirely a comedy because it's a romance and it's uplifting too but i thought shakespeare in love would be yeah, a yeah. wonderful piece to. I to can't explore. believe it hasn't been done. Yeah. honestly, it's, they've done it as a musical, uh-huh, but I don't okay. know how successful it was. Yeah, and along the lines of comedy, I really wanted to do Let Us and Lovage, which I think would be a great uh, uh, show for two spectacular. You know, I don't know that. It's, oh, it's a Peter Schaffer play, which uh, is wonderful. Okay, okay. But Peter Schaffer put he he died just a few years ago, and in yeah. his uh, will. Uh, there will be no adaptations of his work. <laughs> so that's not going to happen. But oh, I, I always thought shame. that that would be a great vehicle for two great divas. Yeah. Um, I love the play, and I think it would yeah. it, it would it would have worked, but uh, in another lifetime. Well, a couple commissioning ideas you just put out into the world. Hopefully someone <laughs> will pick that up. One of them's not possible yes. yet, but who knows? Lawyers can accomplish a lot. We have one more question I want to ask you guys, and it's sort of a tradition on the show because of our name. We're named for the ghost light because of haunted theaters and all that. So I wonder if either one of you has ever seen seen a ghost any stories to tell on that in that regard it's happened to me twice okay but uh one i don't want to share because okay. it's very very personal fair but, enough but one was when i was about 14 or 15 years old and living in bexley ohio mm-hmm. and i had started composing a couple years before and i remember in the middle of the night i woke up and i i swear this was real there was this dark column as much as there could be a light, a column of light, this was a column of dark mm. that was floating around my room. And I don't know that it was a particular person, but it was music. Ah. And it was moving around the room. And I just, I, w- I remember waking up. I remember what my room looked like then. I had my monster models on, <laughs> on my desk. I remember it was very late at night. I remember there was moon, there was moonlight coming through the window, but I, it was clear to me as anything I have ever seen. Wow. And I don't know if it was a presence or a ghost of a person, but it was music. It sounds like you and were I moved felt it. instead of frightened. I was so moved. Yeah. I didn't want it to go away. Yeah. And it felt almost like a blessing. Wow. It was so powerful. Wow. Can you top that, Gene? 
I'm afraid I can't. <laughs> I, 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 I'm afraid, and, I, and I suppose if I see a ghost, I close my eyes so quickly. A lot of people say that on this show. They, they yeah. tell me about ways they've avoided seeing ghosts right. in their so lives. I'm, 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 alas, I, I don't have a story to tell, probably because I'm too scared. Well, that's. I don't. I don't think that makes you unique. I think that's a fair stance to take. But listen, gentlemen, great conversation today. Jake Heggie, Gene Shear, thank you so much for being guest on the Ghost. So Life excited Podcast. to be here. Uh, thank you so much. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.